Hello, everybody. Welcome to the present show. And uh, as usual, Fat is here with us. So, Fat. Hello, everyone. So, Fat, who's our guest today? So, today we have Scott with us. Scott has a very cool title and profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we're, we're very honored and happy to have you with us on the show. Uh, and, you know, please share with us, you know, a little bit about yourself, you know, speaking to the audience, and we'll go from there. Okay. So I am Scott Crabtree, Chief Happiness Officer, because I get to call myself whatever I want, Chief Happiness Officer of Happy Brain Science. So I, like you, Patrick, I believe, I used to be in high tech. I was spent decades leading the design and development of video games and then ended up at Intel. And while I was at Intel, I discovered that there was a real solid peer-reviewed science of happiness. Work done by respected professors indicating choices we could make to make ourselves happier. And that if we did make those choices, our brains would fundamentally work better in most situations. So it's not universally true. Happiness does not solve everything. But for most of us, most of the time, we will do better work, make better decisions, and even be better people when we are happier. So I discovered the science of happiness and finished my introduction to it, which was a book by Sonia Lubomirsky titled The How of Happiness. Uh, She's a University of California professor. And I thought this is maybe the most amazing thing I've come across in my whole life. Solid science guiding us to better choices so we can lead happier lives and be better people. I want to do this and enjoy this and enjoy all the benefits that come with it. And And bring it to other people. What's that? And bring it to other people. Exactly. So about five five seconds after thinking that, I thought, you're not going to remember all this in six months, Scott. You're going to forget most of this the way we forget most things in six months. How can you not forget this science of happiness that you've discovered? And what popped to mind for me, I happen to be the kid of two teachers. What popped to mind for me is if you really want to learn something, you should teach it. So I started Uh, volunteering to give conference presentations like the science of happiness in video game development or the science of happiness in software development. Mm. And that experience essentially went viral. And so about seven, seven and a half years ago, I quit Intel and founded Happy Brain Science, where we teach the science of happiness and thriving at work, which includes a lot of things, including mindfulness. Cool. So that's, uh, I would have a billion questions, but let's start from, uh, I wonder how do you measure then your success as chief, chief happiness officer? How do I measure my success as chief happiness officer? By people telling me that I've made a positive difference in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was part of why I kept doing this work. I always had a perfectly fine career leading technology development. But I never had people stopping me in the halls going, dude, dude, that thing you did a couple of weeks ago has changed the way I'm talking with my team and my teenage daughter, and things are much better. Thank you. It's like, whoa, I'm really on to something here. So those anecdotal reports are awfully nice. But of course, I call my company Happy Brain Science. I'm trying to offer people as little of my opinion as possible and as much information grounded on science and data as possible. So... 
I have to get good data. And so I have a happiness test that Professor Lo uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, who I mentioned earlier, she actually created it. I just put it online on my site. And that is a way of measuring people's happiness. And so I have the ability to measure people's happiness before I work with them, whether that's a workshop, coaching, whether they take my e-course or play my card game. Uh, and then I can get them to come back later and measure their happiness again. And scientists agree that measuring happiness is not perfect with a self-reporting questionnaire, but it is valid and useful and dependable. So I measure my success by measuring other people's happiness. Is there a, a simple definition of happiness? Uh, there's a definition. <laughs> simple is, uh, well, I guess simple is in the eye of the beholder. So uh, good question, Patrick. What are we talking about? Scientists don't like the word happiness because it's too fuzzy. So they typically use a phrase like subjective well-being. Uh, subjective well-being gets at a couple of things. First of all, we are talking about self-reports of happiness. So if we ask you questions about how happy you are, that's usually how scientists are measuring happiness. Now, before we go any further, a bunch of listeners out there are probably thinking, how can you possibly ask people to self-report happiness? We delude ourselves all the time about all kinds of things. Part of what mindfulness is great at, right, is getting us to see our own thoughts that stray from reality and bring them back to the present moment and reality. But there are independent measurements of brain activity that can gauge happiness as well. We have a very happy spot in our brain, which is the left side of our prefrontal cortex. And this, if, if you do a lot of meditating uh, or something else to make you happy, even if you give an infant something to suck, the left part of the prefrontal cortex lights up. So if you take those self-reports of happiness and those independent measurements of brain activity, Again, it's not perfect, but there's a strong enough correlation. By the way, the furthest shift left science has ever found in prefrontal cortex activity is uh, Professor Richard Davidson, who I assume you know, mm -hmm. doing mindfulness studies with... Um, I'm going to mangle the name because I don't have a good French accent, but um, the monk, um, Mathieu Ricard, I, is that how you say his name? You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. yeah. Happiest man on earth. Yes, exactly. That's why he is called the happiest man on earth, because his left side of his prefrontal cortex activity was the strongest that Dr. Davidson has found so far. So, yes. Um, but I fear that I've gone astray. You asked me a good question, and I started giving you so much detail that I lost my way. Remind Definition. me again. Definition of happiness. Thank you. So subjective is uh, the self-reporting of happiness. And then well-being gets at the fact that we are talking about positive emotions. Positive emotions are wonderful and short-lived, right? Something good happens to us, our mood goes up, and then it comes back down to a happiness set point that we each have that differs from person to person. Um, and while those emotions matter, and they are part of what we're talking about, we're also talking about a longer-lasting sense of meaning and satisfaction in life. I create a podcast that helps boost mindfulness in the world, and that boosts well-being in the world, and that makes the world a better place. Whatever it is that brings satisfaction and meaning to your life, 
we mean all of that when we say subjective well-being. Turns out, according to some research that we did at Happy Brain Science, depending on how people were raised, we use happiness and joy oppositely. So to about half of us, happiness is deep and lasting and meaningful, and joy is sort of fluffy. You get it from eating an ice cream cone or something. But to the other half of the world, it's switched. Joy is deep and meaningful, and happiness is light and fluffy. So I happen to use the word happiness, but I don't care what we call it as long as we know we're talking about positive emotions plus a lasting sense of well-being, meaning, and satisfaction with life. I like that. And uh, how, how much this is connected with uh, the acceptance part, right? So like regardless where you are, you still feel happy because you, are, you learn to, to accept that, right? It's such a good question. A lot of it has to do with mindset and acceptance and more. So uh, I'm assuming I am preaching to the choir, you two and your listeners, when I bring up Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, to me, is such a great mindfulness leader, and one of his quotes that I love so much is, suffering is not enough. That is, in any moment, there are children dying of hunger, but there are also beautiful smiles on children and, and blue skies and clouds and trees and all these wonderful things in the world. So, we want to appreciate all of it, right? Not just the bad, not just the good, but appreciate all of it. So suffering is not enough. So a lot of what the science of happiness has found is that we boost our happiness by accepting things the way they are and not trying to change everything at once. And science has found those who are in the present are happier than those who spend too much time in the past or the future. So Happy to be right here, right now on the present show with you two. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It's a good moment for me. And the more we're in this moment and accepting what's in front of us, the happier we tend to be. Now, there's, I find fascinating the way the paradoxes in life. So let me give you an example. I read a great book by, uh, I'm not going to remember the author's name and I can't pronounce it anyway, so I'll just stick with the title. The title is Sapiens, A Short History of Humankind, I believe. And in that book, the author talks about ever since the French Revolution, democracies have valued liberty and equality. Mm -hmm. And those two things are directly opposed to each other. The more liberty you have, the less equality you have. And the more equality you have in a society, the less liberty you have. As soon as I read that, I was like, ow, resolve this for me. This, this hurts, this cognitive dissonance. And the next line was like, if you're looking for a quick, quick resolution to this, forget it. These values are useful to democracies precisely because they push against each other. Mm -hmm. So democracies like France and then the United States and others have to find the right balance between liberty and equality. So I bring that up because... I could argue very effectively and with lots of data and science, happiness is about accepting all of life the way it is and living in the present moment. And I could successfully argue to you with a lot of data and science, happiness is about having clear goals and working hard to create a better future. And they're both true and they fight against each other, right? So there's no simple answer Sorry if this one became long-winded, but there's no simple answer to, is it more about acceptance or more about changing your life? 
but the data would indicate it's more about acceptance. That only, and this is a very rough estimate from scientists, but but the estimate that was famously published on the cover of Sonia Lubomirsky's book, The How of Happiness, mm-hmm. is that our circumstances, for most of us, most of the time, there are always exceptions, our circumstances amount to only about 10% of the difference between one person's happiness level mm-hmm. and another person's happiness level. And about 50% of it is genetic, and about 40% where I think all three of us focus is what's going on between our ears and what can we do about that. Yeah. I also heard some interesting perspective that, because uh, a lot of people say, and you probably get this a lot, is I want to be happy. Tell me what I should do to be happy. Yes. But is it about being happy or is it about feeling happiness? Because there's, at every, any given moment, there's, there's sadness and there's happiness. Is it that people just focus too much on the sadness and not on the happiness, making the, the choice to feel happy and, and be happy? I don't know if this makes sense. It does make sense. And you're right. People say, I want to be happy. And what I tell those people is you want to choose happy. You want to do happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, What the science tells us is that happiness comes from lots of sources, but a lot of it's coming from between our ears and how we view our current situation and how we view the world. And there are lots of things we can do to choose more happiness in our lives, but it's really an ongoing process of repeatedly making the right choices, right? So for you and your listeners, choosing to meditate is a fantastic choice if you want to be happier. Mm both because of the immediate happiness boost it brings, right? I mean, I know, again, I'm preaching to the choir here. I am preaching to the converted. But when we meditate, we get happier, right? We feel more relaxed. We're more accepting of life as it is. We're more in the present moment, depending on what style of your meditation you're doing. Maybe you're even feeling more loving kindness towards other people. It's a wonderfully happy activity, right? So choosing to meditate, great way to be happy. But choosing to eat fruits and vegetables also affects your happiness, right? A study has found up to seven servings of fruits and vegetables. We believe it's a causal effect because the happiness tends to show up the following day. Another go-to basic is physical activity, physical exercise. Physical exercise is as effective as antidepressants in treating moderate depression in the long run. So... Is happiness a destination? Is it a process? Is it, is it a choice? Mm-hmm. It, it's all of that, but it comes from choices we make every day. So what I tell people who say, I want to be happy is, okay, let me guide you through some of the science, whether that's in a workshop or coaching or an online course or a card game or a podcast. I want to guide you to making better choices mm-hmm. so that you can, quote, be happy. But it's really do happy or choose can I, happy. Can I reverse a bit the, the situation? Like, can, can you be uh, happy also doing bad things? For example, a happy murderer or a happy thief or anything like that? <sighs> Boy, that's a really good question. <laughs> I don't like much. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not saying it's a great question. I just don't like thinking about the dark side of humanity that much. So I, I am unaware of a lot of science on that very good question. So now you're going to get my 
opinion, which is somewhat informed by science. Mm -hmm. My opinion is that it is very hard to be happy when you're mistreating others because at some level in your brain, in your heart, in your soul, whatever you language you want to use, you know that you're not doing the right thing and it doesn't feel good to not do the right thing. Now, human beings are fantastic rationalizers, right? So I'm sure that somebody stealing from other people is rationalizing it and saying, hey, I've got three children at home. They're going to starve if I don't steal this. I'm stealing this and I'm happy doing it because I'm doing what I need to do to keep my children alive. So is it technically possible to be a happy thief? I'll use the thief example as a little less heinous than some of the others. Um, I think it is possible to be a happy thief. But happiness comes in levels and layers, right? And, and I don't know what you two feel, but I feel like one of the benefits of mindfulness is integration, mm-hmm. is integrating what I'm thinking with what I'm feeling and being aware of all of it at the same time. And I think one of the only ways you can be really happy as a thief, or I hate to bring it back up, but certainly as a murderer, the only way to be a happier bad to be a happy bad person is to be disconnected from part of yourself. You know, to feel really bad about hurting other people, but just shut that off from yourself and delude yourself into thinking, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm happy. I'm a happy assassin. I'm a happy murderer." Murderer. I think those who are integrated, who are letting their whole body and spirit and mind speak to them, I I don't think it's possible to be truly happy and be a bad person. If unless you're blocking part of yourself off from yourself, you you also mentioned fifty percent of the happiness is genetics, correct? Yes, but I want to be careful because people over over interpret that. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it's fifty percent of the difference between one person's happiness level and another. So it's not half of your happiness is genetic, Patrick. It's that half of the difference between your happiness and another random person's seems to be due to genetic factors. Yes, go on. Because I was wondering on the, if there is neurological changes uh, and you're perceiving happiness differently, right? So trying to tie back to Lele's question. Yes. Could you be, you know, doing something malicious, but have a different DNA sequence that makes you perceive it as it's something good, you know, probably rare, rare cases, but this, this is what I was trying to get to. Yeah, good questions. I think it's possible. I don't know of any science specifically about that. And so I hesitate to wildly speculate here. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I should say that the science I know, the science that I study and guide people through for a living is, generally speaking, the science of normal people. Mm-hmm. And I hope you're both asking questions about very abnormal people, sociopaths, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you are, if you get an invitation to join a, a positive psychology study, study I teach positive psychology and other things, but basically positive psychology is the study of what's right with people and how we can all thrive, right? If, if a professor is doing a study, a positive psychology study, they will screen participants. And one of the things they're looking for is, is uh, mental health problems. Because, that, because imagine having a schizophrenic person 
and nine normal people in your study, that's a low sample number, but for, for simple math, if, if one out of every 10 people in your study was schizophrenic, it would be hard to draw conclusions about that, right? Mm -hmm. So most of the research that I'm familiar with specifically excludes people with mental illness. Now, let me be crystal clear because somebody listening out there might be depressed, right? We turn to mindfulness in some ways because we want to be better and happier. So I do know for a fact, I've already mentioned one study, a bunch of these studies have been shown to be effective on people who have depression. So if anyone out there is depressed, first of all, I'm not your mental health provider. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not licensed nor qualified to diagnose, never mind treat any mental illness. But the science indicates that positive psychology, the science of thriving, can help people who have various forms of depression, anxiety, and more. But I don't know of any studies that include sociopaths, schizophrenics, people who are really have unusual brains. Okay. And uh, since we are really champions in self-deception as human beings, is it true that it's enough to fake a smile to feel happier and then to, go, to be like contagious with people around us? It is true. And yes, we are very good at deluding ourselves. But, it's, but there's an interesting distinction here, Lele. Again, really good questions. Uh, I was introduced to the science of happiness actually before I found Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky's book. I found an article um, from a Harvard professor, Daniel Gilbert. Uh, Daniel Gilbert wrote a re review of Sonia Lubomirsky's book. That's how I found it. But Daniel Gilbert has a TED Talk about how good we are at synthesizing happiness, mm -hmm. right? So when bad things happen to us, we are able to construct happiness out of whatever happened. And the interview, uh, in an interview with Dr. Gilbert, he said, you know, the interviewer is saying, so that happiness isn't real then. And he said, hold on, hold on. There's a big difference between synthetic and not real. So a good analogy here is fabric, right? I happen to be wearing a cotton t-shirt. That is 100% natural and 100% real. Now, this shirt is not polyester, but suppose it were for a moment. It's polyester. It's entirely constructed by human beings. It is not natural, but it is 100% real. I can touch it. I can wear it. So... If you make yourself happier by smiling or taking a really wide body posture or holding a pen in your teeth for a few minutes so that you're simulating a smile. Sorry for the audio. If you're just listening and not watching, I just put a pen in my mouth and took it out. <laughs> I am faking that happiness. Yes, I am making it myself, but the emotions I feel are 100% real. Mm -hmm. So... It's interesting because if I have a long science of happiness presentation, I will include the fake it till you make it part. Um, or as Professor Amy Cuddy, originally at Harvard, says, it really should be fake it till you become it. Because what we do with our face and body affects the chemistry in our brain. And yes, we are working to construct this happiness, but that happiness is real, even though it is person-made. Mm -hmm. And that happiness... I do not advocate people faking happiness on a regular basis. I prefer to be genuine and authentic. 
But let's say you had a super important presentation coming up at work and you really needed to be focused and top of your game and high energy for that presentation. Let's say that a hundred other people were going to benefit if you were successful in this presentation. In that situation, I think it'd be entirely appropriate to totally fake it, to put a huge smile on your face and walk with a spring in your step and power pose and go into that presentation feeling good. Oh, yeah. And from the other side, basically, it's also happening the, uh, that if we kind of you know, feel stressed or depressed and so on, then we become even more depressed, right? So like we, the brain is developing also on the other side. So like that's where it's better to somehow fake it until you become it because otherwise the, the other part becomes us, right? Yes, I think that's right. Um, and, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not an expert in depression. But as I understand it from someone who has had it in the past and cares about people who've had it, part of the viciousness of depression is you want to do less that will help you. You don't feel like exercising when you're depressed. You don't feel like eating fruits and vegetables. You don't feel like social contact when all of these are meditating, when all of these things are going to make mm -hmm. you be happier, right? So what do you do? I think you're, you're onto something there, Lele. If you fake being happy enough to make better choices so that you can, excuse me, can pull out of that depression, that's great. Scott, what about uh, the correlation between happiness and, and mindfulness? So, again, you know this better than most, but, but science, now, again, I pride myself on scientific sources. The science of mindfulness is relatively new. So some mindfulness studies are higher quality than others, bigger sample sizes, better methodologies, for example. So you can take some of the following with a grain of salt. But a, a relatively short list, believe it or not, of the benefits that come from mindfulness, according to science, are improved physical health, improved mental health, by the way, multiple forms of each. So physical health, inflammation and blood pressure both go down. Mental health, anxiety and depression both go down. So improved physical health, mental health, uh, improved self-awareness, improved self-control, mm -hmm. uh, improved ability to focus, improved quality of relationships, and improved happiness. And I swear it's just the short version of the list. It's part of why I'm such a fan of mindfulness. Basically, if you take my half-day workshop and boil it down to a sentence, what does science tell us about happiness? The most important thing is to have good relationships with other people. There's a lot more to it than that. But if you had to pick one thing, it's have good, high-quality relationships with other people. What's a key way of having better relationships with other people? Meditating. Mm -hmm. Becoming more aware of your own stuff. And in particular, the kind of mindfulness that I'm sure you two and many of your listeners are aware of, the kind of meditation called loving-kindness meditation, where you're specifically trying to nurture feelings of affection and caring for other people and yourself. It is an unbelievable experience that produces happiness in the moment, produces better relationships long-term, and because of that mindfulness and those better relationships, you'll be a happier, more effective person who will live healthier and live longer. Mm -hmm. That's actually the, the most the weirdest part of it is that to be more 
uh, open to the others and to love more the others, you should be more loving yourself, right? Yes, and, uh, exactly. That's the point. Exactly. Mm. It's ironic because going back to depressed people, depressed people have the word I, me, and mine in their diaries much more than people who are not depressed. So being self-focused is not a good way to be happy. And yet, caring about yourself, being good to yourself, loving yourself, being kind to yourself is a good way to have good relationships and have other people to be focused on. So again, it's one of these paradoxes. Yes, we should focus on ourselves so that we can be there for other people and have better relationships and be a better person. So any uh, practices or, or techniques that, that you teach in your workshops? Do you do loving kindness meditations or? I do. It depends which uh, session I'm doing. So I have a number of different workshops. I touch on mindfulness and my happiness presentation, my happiness workshop and others as well, but I focus on it in depth in a program that I call Empower Your Inner CEO with Mindfulness. So the work I do is focused on people at work. What does mindfulness have to do with work? Well, again, as you and your listeners may know some of this, mindfulness adds neurons to your prefrontal cortex, this most valuable bit of uniquely human brain real estate that we have right behind our foreheads, loosely speaking, responsible for executive functions, right? Focusing attention, initiating appropriate action, making decisions, inhibiting inappropriate action. So if anyone listening has ever started an email to your boss that says, dear total moron, and not sent it, you have your prefrontal cortex to thank. It is awesome brain real estate, and we wish that ourselves and our colleagues would operate more often out of that prefrontal cortex. So I call our prefrontal cortex the inner CEO, mm -hmm. and those who meditate add neurons to their prefrontal cortex, and they enhance pathways running from that inner CEO to the limbic system, the center of our brains that looks more like other mammals' brains, and whose job it is, among other things, to get upset, upset and send nasty emails to people. So in that workshop, Empower Your Inner CEO with Mindfulness, I focus, I, I I do various kinds of meditation. I try to introduce people to sitting, walking, uh, sitting and walking meditation, but especially in that workshop, I'm dealing with busy working adults, right? And they may or may not have an a ongoing mindfulness practice. So they, most of them are probably not sitting down for 8 or 10 or 20 or 30 minutes every day and meditating. Mm -hmm. So I try to give them practices they can do in the busiest of work days. So those include... Use ringing and dinging and buzzing as a mindfulness cue, right? So my phone, thankfully, has not beeped at me during this podcast, but it could. And if it did, I would want to respond with, where am I right now? What am I doing? What am I paying attention to? Is this what I want to be paying attention to? When my phone rings, when, you're, when your computer buzzes at you, use that as a, just a brief moment of mindfulness, Again, walking meditation. Yes, you can stand up and do 20 minutes of walking in a circle, but you can also walk mindfully to your next meeting, right? So what a lot of us do on our way to a meeting 
is we decide what's going to happen before we get there and how we're going to respond, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to meet with, uh, I'm going to meet with Kevin and Sue and Jose and Juan, and they're against this idea. So I'm going to have to rally them, and I'm going to bring lots of data, and they're not going to like, but I'm going to convince them. And I walk into the meeting, and I'm all amped up and combative before they've said a word right? And instead, if I can walk to the meeting and just be feeling my feet and ankles, and what is going on down there? I don't have to pay attention to it to walk, but I can get a mindful minute walking to that meeting, and I can show up calm and present and centered because I did a brief walking meditation on the way to that meeting. Third example, and I, I won't give you too many, but there are lots of them, Eating and drinking, right? Hopefully we eat and drink something every day, no matter how busy we are. Too often we're paying no attention. We're not enjoying that experience. Even if it's just water, I can take a sip of water and be there for it and be present and mindful. And sure, it's five seconds instead of five minutes, but that five seconds is infinitely better than zero seconds of mindfulness at work. Mm -hmm. So I focus on moments of mindfulness people can get even in the busiest of work days. I enjoyed my sip of water. So the happiness as such, right? There are many, many things to take care of. Right? We learned that it's such a deep, uh, simple, but very deep uh, way to get happy. And where would you start? Like if somebody doesn't feel happy and is watching this, podcast where where what is the first thing what first place you you start to to feel better you know honestly it's a, another great question Lele. these are really great questions start with where you're inclined to start right what science can tell us is what works for most people most of the time but any single person listening to this you're not an average you're a person with a unique brain those 86 billion neurons between your ears are wired differently than any other brain in the universe. So don't just listen to science. Don't listen to some guy from Happy Brain Science tell you what will make you happy. Experiment with your own life. But if somebody still wants suggestions from me, I say start with relationships. For most of us, most of the time, investing in the quality of our relationships is an investment for happiness for us and a person uh, that we're relating with. And otherwise, go to the basics. There's lots of advanced, sophisticated things people can do about writing down their best possible future and all this other stuff. But really, a lot of it boils down to the basics. Eat right. Sleep right. Get some exercise. And you will probably be happy, happier if you're falling short in any of those three basic categories. So eat right. Sleep right. Get some exercise. Connect with other human beings in a caring way. And you're well on your way to being a to choosing more happiness in your life. Perfect, perfect. There you have it from Thank Scott you. Crabtree, Chief Happiness Officer at Happy Brain Science. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, talking to us about happiness, about mindfulness, lots of tips and tricks, and it's really, really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Patrick and Lele. Great questions, great conversation. If other people have questions for me, they can t contact me through my site, happybrainscience.com. Namaste. Thanks for having me.